This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue between the time when the oceans drank atlantis and the rise of the sons of orias there was an age undreamed of and unto this conan destined to bear the jeweled crown something something dark side i alone can tell thee of she devils with swords of savage dragons of the charred remains of those who would stand against him only i shape-shifting intro of podcasts and my dark brethren steve n of pomonia and samu rodrigo can save you from this terrible fate because the major spoilers podcast is on the air welcome to issue 1060 of the major spoilers yeah. podcast 1060 we calculated this up rodrigo we've been doing podcasts for 21 and a half years wow that's a long time and people being be saying, well, that doesn't, you guys only started in 2008. How can you have been doing this for 21 and a half years? Uh, there was a time where we were doing multiple episodes of the Major Spoilers podcast per week. But yeah. uh, still. What, what you don't understand is that the Major Spoilers podcast uh, extends both forward and backwards in time. Yep, so the exactly. origin point was <laughs> that many years ago. But now we're all the way back into like the 80s. Exactly. Well, more like the 70s, and we're going to get into that later in this episode, because I thought we'd do something different, uh, so many people may not be aware. Uh, last week was Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, and we looked at Fall of the House of Ushers, very interesting discussion that we had, and, and thank you for everybody who commented. Uh, they were like, I'm not really, you know, a lot of people wrote to us, Matthew, and were like, uh, I'm not really familiar with the House of Usher, but I really, really, really enjoyed your guys' in-depth discussion on this. So nice. uh, January 22nd, is the birth date of Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan and uh, Solomon Kane and a bunch of just other other uh, Hyborian Age pulp novel stuff. And so I thought, oh, we could go and look at a Conan book, an adaptation of one of his books into comic book form. But then I realized there have been adaptations of, of Conan stuff for a long time. And so certainly there must be duplications of stories. And I did find that. So this week we're taking a look at um, the um, uh, Zathul of the of the dusk or the slithering uh, darkness. And Marvel did one back in the 70s. And then Dark Horse did one, I want to say, in the 90s or 2000 or 2000s, I guess. And so same story. Uh, and we're going to go and look at how those two comics uh, compare to one another over the course of time. Uh, so that's coming up a little bit uh, later on. But first, how about we get into some regular comic book reviews? 
the reviews. Uh, so, um, man, uh, you know, everyone knows about the Savage Sword of, of Conan. But does everyone know about the Savage Dragon, Matthew? Of Conan? No. I presume they do. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I wonder. I, I'll, I'll, so, I wonder, because there was this big discussion recently online. It just Some of these conversations just get me rolling my eyes. Uh, which one is more recognizable and which one has stood the test of time longer? And the argument was between Spawn and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This was when during the announcement of when Jason Aaron was taking over TMNT. And uh, now we know who the artists are on that. And a lot of people were like, no, Spawn totally is more recognizable and more iconic what? than the TMNT. And I was like, are you guys being ironic, you know, being silly, stupid, or are you guys being serious? And it seemed like most of them were very serious that Todd McFarlane's Spawn was more recognizable and uh, had more of a cultural impact than the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And so, Matthew, I ask, which is more of an impact? Savage Dragon, which has been going on continuously for 37 and a half million years, or, or Spawn? I mean, honestly, I think that the general public knows more about Spawn because Spawn at least had a movie. Mm. And a cartoon yeah. series. And a, t- and a TV show. And yeah. and that's guest appearances video games. in video games, yeah. which Savage yeah. Dragon really doesn't, as far as I can remember. The thing about Spawn, though, is Spawn has that weird, incoherent, constantly retconning uh, Jesus of Malibu backstory where everything just kind of rolls into the rolls into the rolls into the thing and you're just like oh yeah god was totally there except for a minute he was miracle man and now he's a woman named mom but yeah i i feel like if you're asking me which has had a more cultural impact i would say spawn if you ask me which would i read without something literally pointed at my head that might fire some sort of ballistic missile into my eye i'm gonna go with savage dragon as frustrating as savage dragon can be (laughs) so uh, this is, as Stephen mentioned, this is the 30th anniversary issue of Savage Dragon, issue 267. Technically, it's a little late. The 30th anniversary would have been last July. Uh, the first issue of Savage Dragon came out in July of 93. But this is the book that gives us what Larson really does best, and that is continuity, Bronze Age-style continuity. Because uh, the current Savage Dragon, Malcolm, who is the son of the first Savage Dragon, who's technically Emperor Kerr, uh, who is dead, but is currently being represented by the negative one Savage Dragon from an alternate reality, who, as I mentioned uh, a few issues ago of Major Spoilers podcast, is literally Eric's childhood superhero now wedged into this book. And all stories that he ever wrote when he was nine are, in fact, still valid. Rodrigo, and you wonder why people don't recognize Savage Dragon as having more of a cultural impact than Spawn. I mean, Spawn's a mess. Like, don't <laughs> like people. People recognize Spawn because, like, John you know, yeah, because of the movie, and again, because of the video games, and because they've seen the comics around. And Spawn has, you know, uh, just like Savage Dragon, Spawn has a very recognizable characteristics and silhouette but you get into that comic and it is a mess yeah just just don't <laughs> but this is the story of a wedding okay it is not the wedding of the dragon nor his son malcolm dragon it is the wedding of the dragon's daughter angel dragon and so we start 
uh, now this is important. Savage Dragon takes place more or less in an approximation of real time. So we start 15, 16 years ago when Malcolm, the current Savage Dragon, was a kid and Angel was his older sort of kind of half-stepsister. They are not related, but they do have a father who is dimensional alternate versions of the same man, if that makes sense. So when, when I say to you that Angel and Malcolm have had sex, it's because they are not actually physically related. It's just that their dads are the same guy from different dimensions. But this actually goes back through. You know, that's the same. Uh, that's the same answer that they give on Pornhub for those one category. Yeah, exactly. What yeah. are you doing, stepdaddy? Oh, but, I'm not actually your stepdaddy. I'm from another dimension, and I'm actually somebody right. else. Oh, okay, it's fine. Bonus. But this is the story of <laughs> Angel's life and how Angel grew up around uh, Frank Darling Jr. Frank Darling, of course, was one of the Savage Dragons friends from the very first issue of the book 30 years ago. His son is now an adult. Savage Dragon's daughter is now an adult. They are getting married. So they go through and retell a lot of the story of Angel's life, including the point where Eric Larson says, oh, they're making my book an adult-only book that can only be seen in the adult section fine it's going to be full-on porn so if you remember the uh, series of uh, dueling reviews some time ago when we were talking about savage dragon having a four-way and then a five-way and then a six-way we're up to a 67 and a half way uh but yes they do actually flash back to the point where she and malcolm start sleeping together where all of the things happen angel actually has a child by malcolm the savage dragon that he and his wife are raising. That's the book that we have. So we see, you know, the this standard story where Dragon is backstage with his friend and he's like, hey, old pal, are you ready for this? Teehee, you know, she's dragging you the old ball and chain. And then you cut to Angel's dressing room where Savage Dragon's wife is performing oral sex on her and explaining how now that she's married, she can't have this anymore because she's in a committed relationship. And I'm like, oh, oh, Eric. You're such, oh, Eric. But anyway, we do have the wedding, and we do have Malcolm giving Frank a little bit of, I want to say, the business in the Eddie Haskell sense, where he jokes that uh, his new wife has had sex with several superheroes, so he needs to bring his A-game. And then on the final page of the story we get a piece of story that has never been revealed. And as a long-term reader of Savage Dragon, I can tell you exactly when this happens. I can tell you when and where and what was going on elsewhere in the book. But something happened many, many issues ago that has just now come to light and makes the last page of the book a complete blah. And I'm talking, we're talking Dan slot level blah. We're talking about, oh my God, this guy is called the War Doctor level blah. It is a big, big moment in Savage Dragon continuity. And if you don't really read it closely, you might not even notice. And I really love that. Um, the back of the book, uh, this is a $10 comic book, by the way. It's a 100-page book. 
Oh, I was going to say, yeah. is this just because it's Eric Larson's name on it or because there's actually a reason behind this? Because woof, $10. There's, there's a ton of material in this. There's a backup story with Captain Tootsie. There's a backup story that's really, really cute uh, with Dragon's children, uh, Tyrone, Jack, and Amy having an adventure and uh, fighting off a bunch of evil tech bros because, you know, they're all one quarter alien, super strong, punchy guys. And uh, they end up beating up tech bros and uh, freeing homeless people. And I'm like, wow, okay. So yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a thing. And then of course there are reprints in the back of rare issues of Savage Dragon and Megaton and books that feature uh, Eric's characters from 82, 83, 84. Now, here's the thing. If you're a real super, like, high-level geek, like I know I am, you're going to get to the back of this book. You're going to say, oh, this is familiar, because I own all of the books that it's reprinting. And it's not necessarily reprinting them in, like, big-time, amazing, high-definition reworked. It's here are stories that you've never seen featuring Malcolm and featuring these characters, uh, specifically featuring uh, the new Savage Dragon, whose name is Paul, because nothing says hero like Paul. But I will say this, for all of the frustrations that I occasionally do have with Eric, uh, Mr. Larson, he can tell a story. And even though there are peccadilloes where you're just like, I really don't need to see you know, this direct explanation of just how horny, for lack of a better word. Uh, no, Maxine, man, comics are horny. This book is horny. I'm looking at it right now. And it's like Maxine Dragon is a horn dog. Maxine Dragon wants sex all the time. She wants sex with her husband. She wants sex with her husband's stepsister from another dimension. She is just into sex. And there is nothing wrong with that. But there is a point where I, as an old person, uh, I am 53 right now. It, as I read this book, there are points where it does feel unmotivated. feels exploited, exploitive. I would say it definitely feels maybe a little puerile. And that is that is something that can be an issue, especially if you're someone where you really, really want the drama. You want the, oh, these things are happening, and oh, what happened 20 years ago that I don't know about. But you don't necessarily want to explain to you know, your significant other, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your mom, your third cousin, Elvis, why this is a full page shot of a superhero in her wedding gown getting boinked on a table with, you know, visible nipples and obvious penetration. And, it, it, you know, there is a moment where you do have to say to yourself, it's a creator. It's an independent creator. He's doing independently creative things. And that's going to mean not necessarily everything to everyone's liking. And I'm, I'm really sort of fine with that, but I can't give this the five slices of meatloaf that I wanted because that is a big asterisk. Um, and there does come a point where you just kind of say, I cannot, I mean, I can't read. I sometimes will read comic books when I'm in public or at work or in situations where people might see where I'm reading. You can't read Savage Dragon there. You cannot. I, I don't. Please don't try. It will hurt you. But still a good book. Still four slices of meatloaf for Savage Dragon 267. I have a love-hate relationship with this book, but for about the last five years, it has been all love. 
and there's enough to love about this particular comic that even the things that I hate don't sink it. So, okay, there you go. That was out last week from Image Comics. Uh, did this uh, 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 Savage Dragon has that been following a monthly release schedule, or is this like when Eric gets around to it? It tries for a monthly schedule. Uh, Eric has the last few years. There have been moments where, you know, there've been delays and there've been breakdowns in communication. Was like this said, issue delayed or was there an issue? Yeah, last this month? issue was resolicited. And I think part of it is because it is a, you know, a triple sized issue with one creator. So yeah, that's why I was even curious. if you're, yeah, even if you're just reprinting your old material, you're getting that material, you're, you know, getting it all together, you're collecting it, you're writing the book, you're writing the letter column, yeah. So this issue was delayed from when it would have expected to come out. Do you know how, how long that was? Uh, well, when was July? Seven months. Oh, so this is that, that long ago. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, all right. So uh, good on you, Eric. Keep doing keep keep doing your, your vision and keep doing what you want to do and keep telling people I'll do what I want to do and I don't care what you think. Um, yep. And it appears to be working for him, so I don't. I guess I don't have a problem with it. So, okay. Um, if everyone has heard of the Savage Dragon, have they heard of just? Oh, I guess it's just uh, Red Sonia, not the Savage She Devil or anything like that. Uh, Red Sonia number seven out this week from Dynamite Entertainment. This is the start of a new story arc that is actually building off, obviously, the events that have come on before it. There are two different storylines going on in here, and I thought just because names are super weird in the Hyborian age uh, that uh, I thought maybe it was going to, these two were going to slam into one another with the big bad being the big bad that we meet. Uh, it doesn't appear to be Kulan Goth, uh, who is leading his followers out into the wasteland and trying to rebuild his powers. Uh, instead, uh, Red Sonia has been recovering from her injuries in her last battle at a monastery in uh, Brythunia, which is going to come up in our in our main trade paperback discussion here in a little bit. But she's been recovering there, and then suddenly there is something that is killing the villagers uh, and, and villages around uh, this monastery that she's staying at. And, of course, this being not the, uh, the Enlightened Age, people believe that if they take a virgin from the town and they sacrifice it to the monster in the woods— that they will be protected. And so the villagers decide to take a, like a 10 year old girl and her sister is very upset about this. Her older sister, who's also a redhead. Uh, she goes out there to save the little girl. And of course, red Sonia, the monastery, uh, the nun, um, what is he called? The head sister or whatever is like, Hey, you need to go out there and kill, even though we're against killing. And so we get a kind of a big mid-level monster fight where they are just fighting little creepy uh, things, uh, people with bird skulls on their heads, but they, they're cannibals and they're short, like a, maybe two feet tall. I don't know what these things are called, but it's a pretty interesting battle. Uh, it's not as violent as I thought it would be. Of course, Sonia then realizes that uh, the cliffhanger for this issue means that they have to fight uh, some big, bigger, badder monster um, mm -hmm. in the next issue, which is also cool. I don't mind that. But intercut between that, we get to see uh, Kulangoth and how he's this ancient wizard, wizard guy, and he's surrounded by all these big burly men who are, all of a sudden are like, hey, why are we taking orders from this old guy? Why don't we just take over ourselves and rule this land? And of course, that gives Kulangoth a chance to unleash his eldritch powers. And we do have one pretty gross page 
in this issue where he literally is melting a guy and you see on panel his skin and eyeballs and bones just kind of dissolving on page. So that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a gross out for people that may be sensitive to stuff that's overly violent. But at the same time, I want to say this is red Sonia, the she devil with a sword. So kind of you go into this knowing what you're expecting. Um, I like this as a jumping on point for people who are not familiar with, uh, and I don't, I'm going to mispronounce the name, but Turan Gronbeck. Um, if you're not already familiar with his writing, he's done Red Sonia for these last seven issues and some other, I want to say some other um, Dynamite and other Red Sonia uh, titles for Don- Dynamite or maybe Conan, I, I don't remember. But um, he does a solid job of, of building it up, of of leading the reader into the story, into the dilemma that, uh, Sonia and her companions that now number four by the end of the issue, uh, how they're going to be dealing with those things in, in the book. And then also the growing evil that is Kulan Goth and what he is doing and how it's going to be obvious that these two forces are going to come head to head with one another. And so I think from the standpoint of here's a first, and again, it's not a first issue, but the first chapter in a story that is a continuation of something. I think that the writing assignment was done very well. Torin uh, is a woman, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, apologies to that. Didn't know uh, on, as far as the art goes, uh, Walter Giovanni is doing the art in here and um, the art is fine. It's everything that you, that you expect. If you want to see a cheesecake shot of red Sonia drinking from a water bottle and that water is splashing everywhere, you're going to get that. If you want to see Red Sonia in a thong, you're going to get that. If you want to see somebody's face melting off with um, uh, Eldritch power, you're going to get that. If you're going to see big, creepy tree monsters, you're going to get that. So I, I think the art here does its job as well. So overall, I really enjoyed Red Sonia number seven. I thought that for a Red Sonia title, this hit all the points that I expect to find in a Red Sonia book. Uh, and so I'm going to give this four slices of meatloaf out of five. I think it's very solid. Uh, I want to go and read more from uh, Turan Gronbeck. I, I think that the writing is is very good. And um, yeah, if you're looking for something that needs to fill your high fantasy um, niche or your high fi- fantasy itch, I guess I should say, then picking up Red Sonia number seven this week is probably the way to do that. So there you go. All right, so let us now go to Rodrigo, who's going to look at a book coming out next week, and it has nothing to do with high fantasy or the words savage or red dragon or Conan or sword in here. I think Rodrigo is going to be talking about a fairly tame book. Yeah, fairly Mm -hmm. tame. Chart Remains number two, a book in which everyone catches on fire and gets burned to a crisp. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so there are these, uh, mysterious fires happening and, uh, our, basically our main character, Amy saw someone in the flames, like not somebody being burned, but like a person that was like made of fire or mm. something like that. Did you review um, the first issue of this? I didn't No. Okay. This, the story sounds very familiar, but please go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's another uh, character who's a firefighter who has been having dreams about this 
person monster, but doesn't want to admit that it's true. Um, so there's another fire, and basically now the police are after Amy because she's been to like two of these, and they're like, "How come you keep showing up at these major fires?" And she's like, uh, "I'm the protagonist." <laughs> uh, no, no, no. She has a like uh, this time. She's looking for her friend who was in the fire but survived, and then now she's kind of involved with this organization that seems to have like whisked her away somewhere else. Um. An organization that that at least appears to be a charitable organization. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty interesting issue. Really, what stands out is uh, uh, Andrea Muti's uh, art. Right, mm-hmm. uh, they use a um, a type of like watercolor style art. Yeah, I don't know. I if really it's like that. watercolors. I like the coloring in this a lot because of yeah. that, that style. It's it's you know someone someone reminiscent of something like Grass Kings, mm-hmm. yes, very right. Much so, yeah. um, but this book being all about fire does something special with that because you know fire is like ephemeral and like it's you know you can't if you like draw fire with a hard outline it doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. So these watercolors really allow fire to be sort of this like scary entity of its own that like doesn't stay in the lines right sort of like flickers and 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 washes over other things um it's pretty good i i wasn't expecting to to get into the art like this because i'm not a i'm I'm actually not a huge fan of the watercolor style i don't think there's anything wrong with it but it's usually not my thing um, but it's nice to see someone who is clearly very deliberately using this style as a like narrative conveyance for everything that's going on, right? Um, it's always good to see that art following the themes, uh, which is something that is great when you see it in a, in a comic book that's doing it and can be very off-putting when you see a comic book that's like dissonant between the, oh. its themes and the art, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give it four slices of meatloaf. Uh, I need to go back and read the first one because I haven't done that yet. Um, but uh, yeah, this looks good. I'm I'm interested in seeing where it goes. For some reason, and I looked on the site, for some reason, just this first issue, maybe I read it because they sent it to me and they're like, hey, we're really excited about this. And so I read it uh, on the day that they sent the first issue out. But something about this book just feels like I've, I'm super familiar with the plot and the story and what happened in the first issue. I agree with you uh, that the that the coloring in this is brilliant. But at the same time, when you're talking about the fire, um, a lot of times you just think fire, red and orange, right? They don't do that with fire here. Yes. Sometimes fire, red and orange, but a lot of times the fire is yellow and green and yeah. Like fire blue. Yeah, no, it's, it's just very different. And it just lends this, uh, differentness to the, yeah, absolutely. It's like, this is a book about fire, so fire is represented in lots of different ways, right? So it's, again, it's like, yeah, <laughs> like, here's an artist doing their work, right? Doing their homework, mm-hmm. coming in and being like, fire is going to be depicted in the way, in a way that both makes sense and you recognize it as fire, but also in a way that pushes forward the themes that we want to see. This issue opens on one, two, three, like a four-panel page 
of of charred remains of of people that are still <laughs> that are dead and are still smoldering and there's like blue and pink and red and you know some other colors but yeah it doesn't look traditionally like you would draw fire if you know you're telling a story about something else and it's like oh now the characters are around a campfire blah i hear some fire right mm-hmm. it's it's not like there's a story about fire fire has its own personality here mm-hmm. nice. yeah very cool i like that a lot uh that is out next week from mad cave studios so if people want to pick that up you can go and do that uh yeah so there you go uh at this time we uh, want to remind you that you can find all sorts of other reviews over at majorspoilers.com. And if you enjoy what we do, if you found some value in our discussions so far and you want to say, you know what, I would like to give a little something back to what you're doing, uh, then you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash majorspoilers. And this week, uh, we want to send some shout outs to two of our newest members. This week, we're giving a big thank you to Lucas Buchendor or Buckendor who became an associate member, which is huge, by the way. But Nicholas went a step further and became a yearly member. A yearly member, meaning Nicholas paid the entire year up front. Can I get a woot-woot from everybody? A woot-woot. Well there you done. go. Rodrigo, let's get them hands in the air with a woot-woot, please. Uh, there you go. Can you All right. Them like you do not care. Yes, everybody does that. Uh, put them in the air. Uh, remember, dear spoilerites, when you pay annually like Nicholas does, you get some savings going on. In this case, you get an 8% savings, which is the equivalent of paying for 11 months of membership and getting a bonus month for free. That's a bargain. That is a great deal. And actually, I sent an idea to Patreon today. I'm a Patreon ambassador. Uh, so I'm involved in a bunch of behind the scenes testing and things. There's a test coming up that I want to do with our with our patrons here in the next couple of weeks because there's a new feature that they want to roll out, which looks pretty cool. But I sent them a thing today that I think if they think about it, they will see, ooh, this is an actually great idea, which may lead to more savings for you guys on the back end. So uh, now would be a great time to sign up. Maybe you don't want to go the yearly route like Nicholas did. You might want to do what Brandon Tyndall did. Brandon became a silver level patron in the last week. So a big shout out to, to, uh, to Brandon woot woot to all of that. Thank you so much. Brandon now has access to critical hit a week early and ad free. And Brandon gets access to the major spoilers podcast pre-show this week. I got a weird email. We're going to talk about that. And I do a follow up to that whole weird Twitter. We're banning your post about a dark horse comic. So you can get that only when you sign up at the silver level or higher, whether you're paying monthly or a full year in advance. You get that only when you sign up at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Plus, we get to go woot woot in this show because I know everybody is here wanting to listen to 30 and and 50 somethings. I think, Rodrigo, you're still 30 something, right? Nope, I'm 40. Oh, so I'm sure everybody wants to hear 40 and 50 somethings going woot woot in the middle of the good demographic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> no, and we no want we want to give you a shout out. All you need to do is go sign up at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Um, there's a demographic that matters and then there is everyone else. Uh no. So there, you there go. are no bad demographics. Yep. That, yep. They're yep. Just bad. All right, bad all right, all right. Can I like do we are we gonna get into this? Cause like you guys are arguing two different things. Like 
Matthew's arguing from a human point of view, and Steven's arguing from a like marketing standpoint, marketing, marketing standpoint. and business. Yeah. yeah. So like, yep, yep, yep. The fact that like marketing and businesses tend to care for primarily men of a particular age range is true in marketing and also a bad thing. Oh yeah, and no, it's definitely. Yeah. And so so you guys are actually kind of arguing the same thing. Yep. Which is what we, you know, we do. Yeah, uh, well, yeah so, which is the show. Hey, welcome to the show. Listen, if you want more of this fun, become a patron today. Patreon.com slash major spoilers. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this uh, the 22nd is Robert E. Howard's birthday. He, of course, is famous for writing, uh, creating Conan, uh, the Sumerian, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the King. And so uh, he wrote a number of short stories that then got turned into other things throughout his life. Most uh, importantly, uh, in the 70s over at um, Curtis Comics, which later then became uh, Marvel Comics, a... Um, what was it? The Savage Sword of Conan, which was a black and white magazine sized comic, which is important because if it was magazine sized and not comic book sized, then those comics were not under the control of the Comic Code Authority. So you could get a little bit uh, wild in your comics uh, in this case. So you could draw the scantily clad, clad women. Uh, this book uh, has a lot of uh, bondage domination type stuff going on, which if you go and look at the history of what was going on in the BDMSN, BDSM community in the 60s and 70s, there's a whole lot more freedom and a whole lot more of that being put out into the media. So uh, I think that is reflected in books like Savage Sword of Conan, where you have the the damsel in distress who just so happened to be tied up and also being whipped. Uh, and um and then the scantily clad stuff as well. So as you get into this book, Rodrigo, what was your first, what was the first takeaway that, that you had in reading a black and white Conan comics from, um, from the seventies? I mean, it was, it was interesting. I, um, they, they keep the narration or they keep a lot of the narration. So there's a lot of like Conan did this, Conan did that, or sort of mm -hmm. descriptions that are still there, mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense, especially when it comes to color, because you can't see the color of things. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, it's interesting to see sort of what, like how they interpret the city um, visually. I was, I was, I don't know if I was impressed by that or saddened by that or confused by that, because here's the thing. Um, Robert E. Howard didn't really get to, he didn't travel. Uh, all of his travels took place inside the pages of National Geographic and trips to the library. Um, and so descriptions that he has of things come from those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an adaptation by Roy Thomas and uh, who's doing the art on this. Alfredo one. Alcala. Yeah. And so, you know, you'd expect them to be a little bit more uh, worldly and traveled. And if we're sure. thinking about the Hyborian age, we're looking at maybe Europe and Africa kind of slammed into one another. And certainly where this story is taking place would be like the West Coast of of Africa. And yet. Right we get castles that are more middle Eastern in nature. 
And certainly the inhabitants are very much, um, have an Asian influence in there in how they are drawn. Yeah, but there's a, there's a reason for that. They actually get into the fact that these guys were originally Stygians, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and those guys are Asian. So, um, it's great you know conan and this girl all the way out in the desert but the racism followed them here i know right i, I mentioned earlier that uh um Byrinthia or whatever was going to make a comeback uh conan in this story is traveling with a slave girl that he rescued from the marketplace and his excuse to her was uh come with me and i'm not going to treat you as badly as uh all those other people would have treated you if the other bad guys who were ransacking the uh the marketplace would have gotten a hold of you. So consider yourself lucky that I won't treat you as bad as, mm-hmm. as those other guys, which is a little weird, right, Matthew? It kind of is. And I feel like the sexism is baked into Conan. Oh yeah. 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 I think, that, I think that, so. I mean, that's the era. And I'm not talking about the Hyborian age. I'm talking about the 1930s, early 1940s, whenever this was being written. But I feel like, uh, especially when it comes to the writing of Roy Thomas, I feel like there was no attempt to mitigate this. Roy Thomas was trying to do an absolutely faithful, or as close as he could get, you know, in 50 pages, uh, to uh, a, a faithful rendition of The Slithering Shadow. And so, on the one hand, you look at it, and part of my brain is like, okay, uh, trying to recognize the the art for what it is and not necessarily being. But then I also think about it, you know, it's 1979. Is it any less sexist or racist or horrible in 1979? It really does kind of send me into that spiral of, can I enjoy this? And honestly, the only thing that overcomes it is the fact that Alfredo Alcala can draw. Oh yeah. The art oh in this God. is just like mind blowing. I think I remember. So I, what, what, how old would we have been or what year would it have been when we were in like seventh or eighth grade? Uh, eighth grade would probably have been about 1983, 84, 83, somewhere yeah. around there. I remember. So this would have been, so this, this, uh, Savage Sword of Conan number 20 that we're reading would have actually been released under, um, the, Curtis imprint, even though it was a, you know, later would have the, the Marvel, uh, title, uh, it, Marvel name on top of it. It It is a Marvel joint. Yeah. Like it's an imprint. It's like an imprint of, yeah. Magazine yeah. management company is Marvel. Yeah. But again, because of the comics code authority, uh, they wanted to try and stay. And also because of the, the stigma of comic books are for kids in 1977. They wanted to make this clear that this is definitely an adult book. It's not one of those, you know. Yeah. And so that's what I, so when you're talking about uh, Roy Thomas and, um, and and the artist uh, again, who Akala, when you look at this and you're like, okay, this is meant for adults and this is going to have adult themes in it. And it's going to uh, have this, you know, sexy good times in it or violent times in it. Um, man, they nail the assignment, right? They were like, Hey, uh, this isn't penthouse comics. Um, but this is like Marvel Knights, uh, or what was the other Marvel imprint or the uh, DC black? 
Uh, I think yeah, that the this Marvel is Max imprint. Is yeah, the Max one imprint. That that's the one. The sex and the drugs. And yeah, and so I think when you think about those imprints, I think when you look at this, you're like, oh no, this is perfectly in line with the time period and what they were trying to do. And if Roy Thomas, because Roy Thomas then would go over to Dark Horse and continue uh, Conan for decades over there, mm-hmm. um, and if he's trying to retell these stories as authentically as he can, I also think the writing nails is nailed here. Um, and yes, it's going to bring over all that stuff that Robert E. Howard had in it. Yes, it does have the misogyny. Yes, it does have the racism. Yes, it does have the, uh, the inappropriate, uh, humor in it. Right. Mm-hmm. At one point, the, the, the slave girl, and I forget what her name is. Um, I think he just calls her, uh, not Natala. Natala. Yeah. Uh, she's like, they get to this castle that's in the middle of the desert and there's nobody there. And everyone that is, and they find a guy who they think is dead, but then he gets up and he's running around and Conan kills him and she freaks out. And she's like, we're dead. We are, we've gone to hell and we're, we're, you know, we're in purgatory or whatever. And he smacks her on the butt and he says, yeah. and she's like, youch. And he's like, hi, if we were dead, you would not be screaming like that. And it's like, <laughs> okay, um, not probably right. Uh, you know, in today's standards, obviously. Um, sure. it depends on where you are on Tumblr, I, I guess. So I think from that perspective, I think th- this feels somewhat like a good translation. Now, the whole thing is about, uh, Zathul is they have gone here and these people are addicted to the nectar, this golden nectar that comes from the black Lotus, which the black Lotus becomes a, um, popular or an important, uh, plant in the world of Conan and in other places, magic, the gathering. Um, because it has these mystical properties and what it does to the, this, these people is it puts them into a dreamlike trance where they'll get up, they'll start to do something and then they'll forget what they're supposed to do. And then they'll go back to sleep and they will have essentially these opium infused, um, dreams that they find a hard, hard getting out of. And meanwhile, the entire city, which is a city palace is built on this oasis that contains this Lovecraftian type monster called Thog. Uh, not to be confused, Rodrigo, because I'm sure you were by the blue uh, haired nine foot tall Muppet. Right. <laughs> Although they do kind of look a little bit alike. And so Thog will come up occasionally and he will just feast on whoever's lying around. And the people of the city are okay with this because it's like, man, we kind of forgot about these people. Meanwhile, Conan runs into a fellow, fellow Sumerian who is just like, oh yeah, I've been growing up here since I was a little girl. I am also no, I'm not under or she's Stygian. Oh, is she Stygian? Okay. Yeah. Uh, she's like, I'm not under the spell of the black Lotus. I do, you know, whatever I want. And you know, uh, Conan, you can be my King and I will, I will, uh, we will have good times, but in order to do that, we need to get rid of, rid of this blonde haired girl, feed her to thog. <laughs> And then, of course, Thog shows up and monster fighting ensues and uh, Natala gets uh, tied up and whipped. Uh, and uh, here she keeps her clothes on in this in this. Mm-hmm. Book. Uh, but then, you know, bad things happen and Conan goes in and fights and swords and, and does all of these kinds of things. A lot of action uh, for however many pages this is. It's not even. Is it 50 pages? I don't think it's even 50 pages, is it? Well, it's a 60. Oh yeah. It's, it's 50, it's 50 pages. Yeah. Yeah, It's 50 pages of story. And then they've got a bunch of uh, backup stuff uh, in here. Yeah. Yeah, You've got some, this story moves quick. It does. And I feel like the, the speed 
of the adaptation is a little bit, um, it, it's, you read this and you're like, oh, okay, this must have been, yeah, fine, it's a real short story. I feel like it's actually not as easy to fit what we get, especially after having re- read the other adaptation. I mean, to see how skillfully Roy put this all together, well, Roy and Alfredo together put this all together and made however long the story was into three, you know, chapters, 50 pages. It's really, really impressive stuff because there isn't, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot left out. There doesn't seem to be any moment where sometimes you have that classics illustrated bit where they jump over three whole chapters mm-hmm. because they just don't have the, you know, the page count to do it. That doesn't seem to happen. And then you get to the point where it's like, yeah, this is gorgeous. I'm hypnotized. What happened? Yeah. And so the other thing is that I guess this isn't 50, it's 45 pages because the first four pages of the book are the front cover and the inside stuff and the, oh, great prince between the times of the fall of Atlantis and blah, blah, blah. So you've even got even fewer pages. But uh, so, yeah, to cram this all in here in this read makes it very interesting and fun. And going back to when I said when I was in uh, seventh or eighth grade, a kid brought a Conan book to class one day and he's like, you got to check this out. And I was blown away because yeah, it does have some uh, scantily clad women in it and it's got scary monster stuff in it and stuff that you just don't normally see in your Bugs Bunny or your Andy Panda comics that my parents would let me read. And so I was kind of enthralled by this stuff when I was a kid going, Oh my gosh. And then of course uh, we had a local grocery store, a little small grocery store, that did have a magazine rack that had on the top row your Playboys, your Penthouse, your Vampirillas, your Heavy Metal, and your Savage Sword of Conan. Those were all top shelf books, uh, meaning that you had to be you know this tall or this old to to reach up there and touch them. And I remember, you know, we would go down to uh, the grocery store at a lunchtime or an after school to buy candy or whatever. And occasionally one of uh, my friends would be like, hey, let's go grab that uh, Conan book or that Vampirilla book. And as soon as the store owner saw us reaching for that, we'd get yelled at because this is stuff we weren't as kids supposed to have. Um, I think maybe he thought we were reaching for the Playboy or Penthouse. But in my small community, our grocery store owner was, number one, uh, probably forced to carry these magazines. uh, But number two, um, viewed these as adult material and not for kids, which, again, if that was the point of these magazines, I think they again, nailed it on the head for what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Savage sword was definitely aimed at adult readers and it came out. Roy uh, was the driving force that brought Conan to Marvel in a, about 69, 70. I can't remember the exact year. They actually did a uh, sort of a test run. They, they created a character and they did a, story he and artist barry windsor smith did a whole story and put it in the pages of i don't remember it was like tower of shadows or some nonsense and then they said to the robert e howard company this is what we want to do with conan this is you know 12 pages of something that we want to do and roy convinced them to license it to marvel so in 1970 or something it starts you know coming out by 77 78 80 the kids or the young people who had been reading this, you know, if you were 16 and when that came out, you're in your late 20s, you're going on 30 now. 
this is the book that you graduate to from that Marvel comic. Yeah, and I mean, isn't isn't that really weird how Conan starts in, uh, I, I guess it is 1970, as just your regular straight-up Marvel comic, and we start to see those adaptations there, but then they're like, oh, no, let's redo this again, but for adults. I find that fascinating, just from a, it's the same company, we're just going to rebrand yeah. this and make it more adult. I just think that that's wild. Yeah, that is. That's that's a Martin Goodman thing, though, too, because Martin Goodman, um, who was the publisher of Marvel Comics, was also the publisher of many men's books. Uh, one of them, and I can't remember if it was like it was something like Squire or Gent or something that was, you know, naked women and stories about adventure and, you know, punching things and how to find a good stake. But you do get that really kind of interesting, you know, the Curtis Comics uh, division at Marvel was using Marvel characters. There's a whole issue of uh, Misty Knight. You remember Misty? Yeah, yeah. Where Misty Knight and her lady friend Colleen spend the whole issue captured and tied up and forced to take heroin, and they're naked. They are topless in this book. Marvel characters, topless in this Curtis magazine for adults. And then, of course, when you go back and you try and read the Misty Night omnibuses, you're like, hey, they added something. But yeah, I, I feel like in some ways that differentiation is what's missing from the modern, you know, as Stephen likes to say, comics is horny. Oh, man, we're there's about to not, get into the horny stuff on the, in the next uh, right. take on this story. But there's not, there's not that line anymore it's not like here's the here's where you go for your adult magazine that you have to buy up on the top row with the the heavy metals and yeah the, and the nudie books by larry flint it's like ah oh, we're just gonna stick it in a regular dark horse issue and hope that nobody you know catches us there is a line i'm trying to find it when they they meet the stygian woman um thalus uh i'm trying to think of when natala calls her the yellow hussy uh, no, but that's that's problematic as well. Uh, no, she when she's talking about how she she came to it um, to the city and why she is here. Uh, they talk about how they came to the East, the descendants, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she just basically says, hey, I was kidnapped as a young child and I was brought here and um, I'm just here and I do kind of what I want and I kind of run this place. And, you know, they kind of gloss over just a lot of. How did this just woman get here to the city and she's not under the thrall of the Black Lotus or any of the other stuff? I mean, they she does say that, like, the, the reason she gives for killing Natala mm -hmm. is that um, she's like, when these guys wake up, they're going to want stuff and she's not going to be able to take it. Yeah. Okay, so that's like your first clue that something is uh, not right. Now, we do see like a couple of these guys wake up and are walking around. And the minute that they see Natala, they are just like must have and they try to attack her. And then, of course, uh, Conan cuts their heads off. Right. Um, but it's I feel like it's glossed over a little bit in this story. Yeah, which brings us to. Uh, so this is the seventies version. I like this for all the problems that it is. And I think I like this mainly because of the art. I think that's its biggest mm -hmm. saving grace is how wonderful the art is and how thog this, like imagine a toad with tentacles, uh, looks, <laughs> that's kind of how thog is. And so it's yeah. like a cool yeah. monster design and everything. Go ahead, Rodrigo. 
I was gonna say it it actually does give like a Henson um yeah, it's like a creature, Muppet shop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty cool. Uh but then we jump into uh the Dark Horse take on this exact same story. Now, the interesting thing about this is we got forty five pages from Roy Thomas. Uh in Conan the Avenger, this is I want to say a 2015 book. Uh, mm-hmm. this one gets three issues of 22 pages each. So we're actually increasing this by 15 pages over what we've had before. Yeah. And so part of me is like, wow, this, you know, if you're just telling the same story, could it be two issues or maybe could it be one issue? But they, I think Fred Van Linty and Villanova, who's the artist on this, add a little bit more to the story that requires that that third that third chapter that third issue the story is the and same they actually go ahead yeah they open a little earlier they actually open with a like a two or three page sequence where you see one of the you know the destroyers and the black lotus in his arm and it's like mm-hmm. oh you know you have kind of almost this cinematic if you had a camera it would be like a pullback mm-hmm. yeah. you know a nice crane shot so they actually are able to do some more transitional material. And I feel like that helps in a lot of ways to make the story feel even more dynamic. So Rodrigo, uh, before we had kind of like a, a middle Eastern take on, uh, the castle. Yeah. This one is very much an Ankar Wat, uh, Tibetan. Yeah. Kind of landscape. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely has a pan Asian, yeah, uh, thing which you know, like I can't decide if it's good or bad. But one thing that I like about the Hyborian Age, right, is that like it's like the age preceding the ages that we know about, right? It's like everything mm-hmm. that happened before even ancient civil, what we think now of ancient civilizations appeared. Um, so this idea that there was a civilization that had like some Japanese stuff, some Thai stuff, some like, uh, you know, from wherever, like it, it makes sense in context and I kind of like it, but also I don't know if it's racist. Um, if they were, because, you know, sure, uh, surely at some point they get to some place that's like got like Maya stuff and Inca stuff Mm -hmm. and, uh, Aztec stuff, right. It's like the three. Yeah, big ones. And when I look at it, I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense because I'm familiar with this stuff. And why would it be together? Right. Right. Yeah. Or like this is being treated in this way where somebody who would actually use the sunstone would treat it in this way. So, eh, you know, uh, I, I still don't know how I feel about it. But yeah, yes, it is very a much, weird. This is yeah. like a very, very like South Asian feeling place. Mm hmm. So as you said, Matthew, we're getting like two pages of this um, Black Lotus and the Sleeping Death that everybody is going through. Uh, the first, there's a little bit more time spent with the body that they find at the feast and the um, shadow that passes over it and only leaving the blood drop behind. So we get a little bit more about that. So we're up to maybe four additional pages of content through this. And the issue ends with the uh, meeting of Thallus. The second issue is where things get a little weird because she's she is very much... I'm comfortable walking around naked uh, kind of thing, although she's not naked, her breasts and everything are covered, uh, but it's very suggestive. And she tells the story of how um, these guys are great scientists and there's some really cool, like 
there's a panel where these guys are harvesting the black Lotus and they've got like these machines. It's like some kind of a- a- Atlantean, uh, technology yeah. that's harvesting and the black Lotus, which she, I thought was pretty cool. When she talks about them building their civilization, there's like cranes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like modern day cranes. Uh, they yeah. talk about this, uh, this yellow, uh, uh, wine that they drink and the infusions of everything. And then she talks about how, Oh, when I came here, guess what happens? Uh, they come to me when they wake up and we've get, uh, one, two, three pages of, um, guys having sex yeah. with her. Yeah. And, the, and it's not, it's not super explicit, but it's, you can tell that this is a, it's, uh, this is a category oh, yeah. on that one website of stuff. <laughs> um, that and so I was like, wow, that's sense. very different. Whereas, so again, if we're, if we're comparing stuff where in the seventies version, we get more whips and chains and leather type stuff mm-hmm. here. We get more explicit, uh, sexual acts. Um, especially when Thallus takes Natalia, strips her down and starts whipping her and then Thog shows up. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but when Thog shows up, this becomes in issue three, straight up tentacle porn. Uh, Mm -hmm. in the way that Thog's tentacles are shaped and the way that it, and, and the things that it is doing to, uh, these people, it is, I mean, if I didn't know that this was a different artist, I would be like, um, what's his name? That's always to, tracing the, the porn. To, oh, I would be like, Oh yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. He's just, uh, tracing this again. What were you going to say? Rodrigo? To be fair. To be fair. Okay. When, uh, Alcala did his version, uh, tentacle porn hadn't hit the mainstream. That yet. is true. So that is true. It maybe he wanted it to be tentacle porn and just didn't have the reference. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, again, mm-hmm. that whole page where, uh, Natala is tied up and dangling and she's stripped naked in the seventies version. She wasn't stripped naked. She was still wearing leather pants and everything. This one, she is straight up naked and, uh, fog comes out and is engulfing her with his tentacles. And it, it is, it is, I mean, it's graph. I mean, okay. So let me ask you guys this. If you mm-hmm. didn't know what tentacle porn was, mm-hmm. and unfortunately we've all crossed the Rubicon on that one. Um, sure if you didn't know what tentacle porn was and you saw these pages as they're depicted here, would you think that, Oh, this is a porn thing. Or would you just think that this is a disgusting monster doing things to this woman who's tied up and naked trying to eat her or whatever that it's trying to do. It it may speak to my particular proclivities, but I think the, the thing that makes it horror and not porn for me is both the blood from her whipping and also the fact that the monster is clearly, I mean, he's, he's got an evil, I'm going to eat you face. Oh no, I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that the intent of Thog is to have sex with this woman in a tentacle porn way. I'm saying that being media savvy of all things media, you look at this and you instantly are not thinking, Oh, this is, this is a creature that's going to eat her. You see the tentacles coming out and you're like, Oh no, this means something else. This is a, Subtext. I mean, that's that's the thing about media, right? Is that sometimes something's very obvious, like, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, the fact that you know, uh, in the original story, apparently, this character gets tied up and whipped, Mm -hmm. and whipped. It's like that. That feels like something, right? Right. It's like it is something that like a bad lady would do, but also Mm -hmm. like they're trying to 
keep to be quiet so that Thog doesn't find them. Right. But mm-hmm. she, this lady gets so angry that she ties her up and whips her, right? And it's like, simultaneously, it feels like, yeah, this is part of the story. She's, she's a bad lady and so wants to harm this girl. But also, it's there's something there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting to see two generations of artists trying to contend with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one generation kind of playing it straight, so to c- continue to convey the meaning, and in another generation giving us a lot more like blood and lacerations, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think I feel is a deliberate attempt to make it less sexy. To mm. be like, okay. no, no, no. You see, this scene isn't sexy. It's dangerous, like mm, right. and not sexy dangerous, but bad dangerous. It it in terms of my personal expectation of a story, and this is you know this is a lot of media savvy, but also the cues that you're taking. I feel like if this was playing to a porny audience, they would not go to the the great lengths that they do to hide Natala's nipples because. There's I mean, this is a where, public. This is a public comic book, right? I mean, I understand. I get that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying show me nipples. What I'm saying is, they go to great lengths, even when the thing is wrapped around her neck and around her hair, mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. sure that hair stays over yeah, both yeah. nipples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like the the amount of work put into that makes it feel like, yeah, they're not trying to make this sexy. If they were showing us, you know. Even if it was like shadowed or if it's something like, hey, you know, this girl's totally naked. I feel like you, in my mind, the language of pornography would show me the nipple and then I could, I could make the decision whether or not the, you know, mm. the lacerations. I, I, and they're not sexy to me, but, you know. Oh, no, I don't. I mean, I, none of this to me isn't titillating any any way, but I, I think that. Personally, when I look at this, and this is, again, everybody's interpretation of art, uh, you look, you know, you look at something and you're like, oh, no, that's a penis. Right. When you just look at something that someone has drawn and not inside this comic specifically, but in other places, and you're like, oh, no, that's a penis. I feel like. Yeah, we're trying not to make this pornographic, but for those who know, they know, you know, and so I feel like that is there. And so I feel like there is an intent there. I'm not going to ding the comic because of it. Uh, sure. because there's a lot of people who may not know what that, that subgenre is for both this particular scene or the one where she's talking about all the men of the city come to her when they wake up uh, at the same mm-hmm. time. And, and we see those pages displayed. I don't think that um, uh, obviously it's probably a little bit more explicit uh, in this one than in the other, uh, the seventies version of the, t- of the tale. Uh, but I, but I do feel like if you know what's, what they're talking about or what they're trying to imply here, I think it's there and I think it's pretty noticeable. And so because of that, we get probably an extra, I don't know, five or six pages of content between Natala finding the gold uh, elixir to heal Conan and their escape. Um, and then the, the fight with uh, Thog and, and Conan, this does take that story that was 45 pages and does stretch it out to a 60 page or a 66 page a story quite easily. Mm-hmm. And, and so I guess the question that I have for you guys is, was it necessary to make that 66 pages? Does the 66 page story read better than the 45 page story in your minds? 
See, okay, now I have to I have to say this with the caveat, and the caveat is relatively simple. I am, uh, and this is going to sound snotty, I am a student of the Silver Age and the Bronze Age of comics. And so the language of those comics, the ones that I grew up with, and the pacing of those comics is very natural to me because those were the books that introduced me to this type of format, this type of serial storytelling. But I also feel like when you are doing an adaptation like this, whether you're doing Classics Illustrated, whether if you're trying to put it on Netflix, you are always going to have to make adjustments. You're going to have to tuck here and nip there and do a thing there and make it fit whatever genre you're working in. And I feel like uh, the, the Roy Thomas Alcala version feels like they took this story and fit it perfectly to the amount of space they had and what they wanted to do with one issue. And I feel like as three parts of an ongoing, uh, which it may be an anthology, I don't know. I didn't read Conan the Avenger, but as it's, three it's basic. It's parts, basically just, hey, we're doing uh, the slithering slime and then we're going to go do, right. you know, the Black Sea or the Black Pirate or whatever right. is next. So it's, it's basically yeah. just ongoing. It felt like a three-issue arc was not uh, a decision made for artistic reasons, but for commercial reasons, so that you sure. could pair it with another three-issue arc and put it in the trade paperback. So on that level, I feel like the old-school version is more to my sensibility, more to my liking. But that also does bring into question... Is that partly because of the fact that, you know, Alcala is working in black and white and doing, you know, the stuff that you could not get away with in 1977, whereas the Dark Horse book is very much of a piece with the rest of the Conan properties that they put out? I mean, mm -hmm. the Conan was a, was a Dark Horse staple for years. Oh, yeah. You would um, see. It feels like a decade at least. Yeah, you would see all these books, and you'd be like, oh, Conan the Avenger, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Librarian, Conan the Vegetarian. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, and I feel like fans should definitely have access to it, I also feel like that expectation that here's a three-issue arc that we need to fill with something, as opposed to we want to tell this story and we got 50 pages to do it, I feel like on some level, and it's probably, you know, just my, my thought process, it feels more uh, artistically motivated to me, if that makes sense. The Dark Horse stuff or the? The, the Marvel version, the, oh, the okay. Curtis comic, okay. uh, Savage okay. Sword. Yeah. Um, here's my thing. I So I prefer, if you were to say, which of these two do you prefer? I like the the Savage Sword, the first one, the 70s black and white, because it just feels like a tight story that moves, right? And you do get to read it all in one go. This one, you have to read it over the course of yeah. three months. So that's also something that's maybe a little bit of a drawback uh, when you look at it from uh, when it was originally released kind of form. That being said, though, <laughs> I think uh, the, the Dark Horse version is maybe a little bit more graphic than it needs to be. I feel like there's more context like uh, in the in the in the mm. Marvel version. They're talking about touching these things on the wall that create these glows. 
here they take some time to explain that a little bit more. And they talk about, you know, the scientists and the high technology that this place is going. So I feel like even though there's a uh, there's an orgy scene and a technical porn scene, it feels like they're also doing a little bit more world building, world explaining in the Dark Horse books Mm. than what we got in the Marvel books. Maybe they're over explaining. I don't know. But I felt like, oh, if I were thinking about what Zethul is. I feel like I have a better understanding of it from reading the Dark Horse version than I did reading the Marvel version. Rodrigo, right. what do you what what are your thoughts on on this? Um, mostly what I get out of it is that two different teams sort of chose to adapt it differently. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't really feel that it like quote unquote stretching it over three issues was a problem. I expected it to be. I thought it's like, oh, how are they gonna make this story three issues? And then they make it three issues and it makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's you know, there's a lot of suspense to this story and modern um comic book sensibilities, modern comic book art is better at sort of exploiting time as a way to build um mystery or as a way to explain something because you know you can do panels of whatever size you want um and you you know with three issues you have time to devote to things so i didn't really feel like one or the other was better because of that i you know it's like i now i look back at the original one and it's like wow it's kind of cool that they managed like that they packed it so tight you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um Generally, I don't know that I like I I do prefer the one from the 70s because I like that art more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it, you know, nothing against the the creators of the one from the 2000s. It's not bad. The art is not bad. The art is absolutely fine. Um, But there's something about that old style of book when I started reading comics. That is also the style of book that I was reading. Because, you know, Mexico is like five years behind anyway. And my, uh, I had an unorthodox introduction to comics because I did find a lot of the sexy comics early on and a lot of like the fumetis and a lot of the like, uh, pulp stuff. Um, because that's what, that's what a lot of people were into at that time in Mexico. Like superhero stuff was around. But it was it seemed like much more of a prestige thing where you'd have to go to like a specific store to get it. Right. Um, whereas, you know, there were like just cowboy comics around. And again, I know that I mentioned Turok like all the time, but it, it you know, like when I was like, oh, man, this guy is like a guy and he's like fighting dinosaurs. That's cool. Um, so yeah. when I look at this, it looks like all of those ancient tablets that I found. <laughs> and try to put together what what comic books were, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do prefer that, but I like I really feel that like you know making the monster more tentacly and putting the um, the orgy in or whatever. Like I really feel like those are choices. Like yeah. I I don't I don't say like there's no value judgment to me. It's just like this team chose to put this on, and I feel that both. Both, uh, um, both stories are pulled off right by the oh, end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I basically mm-hmm. feel more or less the same way as like 
Here, Conan and Natala are going off to a new adventure, but not before Conan gets another misogynistic comment in. <laughs> yeah. Hyboria. Yeah. yeah. No, Hyboria. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, yes, there is one that I prefer more than others, but they both. They both do the job that they were assigned. Tell this story over three yeah. issues. Tell this story in one issue. Tell this story and and using modern day uh, standards to it. Try to tell this one as close to, you know, in each case, they're both taking modern day um, ideas of what a, an adult tale is and subverting it into the comic. And so I think both of these do the assignment. Um, I like the character of Thog as a as a monster creature here. I think that that's kind of this cool thing that lives in the sewers and comes out and and eats people is is um, fascinating. I'm not sure that I like the story overall, even take out the, the, sure. the casual racism and sexism and misogyny and, and, uh, overly advert, uh, sex acts in both, uh, books. And I think it's just an, an okay tale. This is not yeah, something not, that gets me excited much. about Conan. Yeah. There's not much to it. Yeah. 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 Um, the slithering shadows, it's, uh, in, originally released in 1933. Uh, here's a, one person said in, in, in the review of this, that it's one of the three worst Conan stories because it's re- uh, repetitious and childish and uh, and is, it's a self-vitilating uh, brew of pseudoscience, stage illusions, and genuine supernatural is how, is how they review that. So they, they yeah, give it a I, I really, review. I, I do feel that at this point when he was writing this, Howard was just reading about opium dens and radium. Prob- probably. Right. I mean, when you, think about, when you think about the time period, 1933, um, what's going on in the world. And certainly if a lot of his stuff is, I've heard of this place, I'm going to go to the library and read about it or through his massive uh, letters that he was sending out to people all over the world. He may have encountered somebody that says, Oh, tell me about this place. And they're sending back uh, their version uh, of that. Um, This is also three years before Howard's death. Uh, So I don't know where he is uh, mentally. I know his mother was in poor health. And I know that he committed suicide in 36. Um, and I, I want to say it had to do with something of, about his mother. So I don't know if his mother was already in decline at this point. Uh, people can go back. We actually had one of uh, Howard's biographers on the show uh, many years ago and uh, talked a lot about him in depth. But yeah, uh, Howard's story is not. Um, I mean, it's fascinating to see what a kid from the middle of nowhere, Texas can do. But his story is just tragic, uh, top to bottom, uh, throughout. So, so, speaking of Howard, there is one interesting choice I thought mm-hmm. uh, that the newer version made. So the older version has text boxes, like you like you would see in any comic, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. The the modern version, the text boxes are look like brownish paper, and they are typewritten. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like they have a typewriter type type. Um, so, so to me, the first one feels like this is trying to make that pro seamless, mm-hmm. and the second one feels like this is this is Robert E. Howard presenting this to you in some way. Right, right. right. It's like it 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 greatly clashes with everything else that's happening. Because, you know, I mean, I'm sure these, like, very advanced Zethulians maybe had typewriters, but you know what I mean? It doesn't fit yes. the, like, swords and sandals It doesn't sandals fit the whole, oh, Prince, written. listen to this story. 
exactly exactly but they they put it in here which makes it feel like they want the audience to sort of perceive howard as a narrator as a character Mm -hmm. yes yeah Yeah. i I felt that was an interesting choice yeah and i think they've done that in a couple of other modern um let's see i want to say let me look really quick i want to say that jim zub has another conan book out this week uh over at titan because um dark horse lost the conan rights and then marvel had them for a long time uh the last couple of years Mm -hmm. maybe five or six years and then those rights have expired, and instead of renewing them, oh, by the way, the first time that Roy Thomas went to go get the rights in 1970 to do these comic books, he paid $200, which was $50 over the amount of, of money that they were supposed to spend for the licensing. And because of that 50 bucks, they couldn't get Al Buscema, uh to, to do the art uh, wow. in the original Conan uh, comic, the, the Marvel comic, not yep. the Savage Sword comic. So I find that very fascinating. But I want to say that they're... Uh, there's a Titan comics out this week and I was going to open it up really quick to see if, um, if, uh, it's also using that type typewriter style for the, um, for the comic, yeah. but it's, I mean, it's, it's taking me a little like, bit longer to open this up. Like I said, so much of this stuff is like choices, right? It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. they almost certainly the writers of this were aware of that old Marvel comic. And they specifically chose to do some things differently. I almost mm-hmm. thought that they were going to try to like scrub some of the racism off, and maybe they did, um, because when you look at um, like your femme fatale in the old one, she has very like she has features that say that are like a shorthand for this person is Asian, right? Like mm-hmm. her eyebrows and her eyes. Um, it's like in this one, she kind of doesn't, um, she, you know, she's like, she's very pale, but if you told me in this one, this lady is a white person, I'd be like, okay, fine. You know, or yeah, like yeah, in they, this one, this is yeah. just like a pale Middle Eastern lady. I'd be like, oh, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, they get close to the end and then there's like, and then I stole it from that yellow hussy and I'm like, ah, yeah, God, al- almost. Yeah, almost made it. Uh, no, what I'm looking at is uh, Titan Comics is talking about Savage Sword of Conan number one uh, back in its original black and white magazine format. Although this is not the the 70s uh, Savage Sword of Conan. Right. This is uh, written by uh, uh, John Acuti and Patch Zitcher, Zercher and Jim Zub uh, is this one that uh, they're releasing in. I want to say February is when that's coming out. So if you're looking for Savage Sword of Conan. Um, look to Titan comics. We don't get a chance to do this a lot where we get to compare stories that have been done from a different source material multiple times. And so I think it's fascinating when we do get a chance uh, to look. Yeah. This is enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I enjoyed the discussion. So thank you both for, for sharing your thoughts on, on, on this. Um, I think we're going to see the conversation of, uh, and, and of course, certainly uh, comic books does this a lot. I mean, we can look at how many times are we going to tell uh, Craven's last hunt story again and again and again, or this venom story or this Batman breaks his backstory. Uh, how many times are we going to tell that again and again and again, which they do a lot, but I think we're going to see a much bigger discussion about adaptation and what happens when we're remaking stuff, because we are starting to see a lot of movies being remade. And these movies are like, what mean girls just came out. Isn't that just a remake of the original mean girls? I don't think it's a, it's, I mean, it's a musical, but I don't it's think it's musical, supposed to be, yeah. I don't yeah. think it's supposed to be set in like 
oh, this is a continuation of the previous Mean Girls. It's literally just, hey, we're telling Mean Girls again, but this time a musical. We're going to see the same thing about that little wizard boy because we had the books and then we had, what, nine million movies. And now it's about to be turned into a TV series. And so it will be very interesting to see what are they going to take? What are they going to keep? What are they going to throw away? What are they going to expand upon? Especially since that very first uh, Wizard Kid book was super short. And I was surprised they got a movie out of it. What's going to happen when they have to turn that into season one of a TV show and make it go eight episodes or 10 episodes or whatever? I think it's Apple doing it. I don't know who's doing the. No, it couldn't be. It'd be Warner Brothers who's doing it. It's got to be Max. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's a Max series. I won't be watching it. Um, So I think I think we're about to get on this cusp of looking at things that have been adapted and redone multiple times in the next couple of years. And I think we're going to see that become a major talking point across, especially social media uh, specifically. But I think we're going to see some maybe larger outlets start to get into the discussion about how much is too much before we're just re you know, regurgitating the same stuff again and again and again. And is there a need for it? And I think this is a good example. These two Conan books, I think is a good example of, you can add more. You can bring something more to the table, even though you're using and referencing the same source material. And in fact, most of the dialogue in this book is exactly the same from the Dark Horse book as is the Marvel book. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, Rodrigo, have you been looking at Fog, the, uh, the 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 Muppet, to double check and make sure he doesn't have weird tentacles coming out and, and oh, grabbing, no, I didn't, grabbing I sh- people? Oh, okay. uh, I mean... He's not the one that ate people. Yeah, I don't know. He's there was taller. Like, there was like taller another than one. Snookums. There's like a, a a green one whose whole deal is it has like a big distending mouth, and you can put a whole muppet yeah, in no, there. Yeah, no, this one is like, like a go, this guy. If you just do Thog really quick, uh, yeah. he's, I mean, surprisingly, I was like, oh, I expect this to pop up directly to this story. No, I didn't realize there was a muppet named Thog, and so he's the first thing that will pop up. Um, he's also somebody I wouldn't want to meet down in a dungeon while I'm being flogged. Uh, but, um, yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, it's always awkward when you're being flogged. I mean, yeah. 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 Fog, All right, everybody. Fog is definitely a good background Muppet. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Cause you do see him a lot. I, I didn't even know yeah. he had a name, but now that I remember, it's like, oh, I remember the Muppet show. He was a background character on my lunchbox. Uh, cause I always yeah. thought he was great because he's like far in the background. Actually, he's one of the first monsters that come out at the beginning. Cause he's yep. so tall. If I'm not, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. So there you go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I bet you didn't know you were going to get a little Muppet talk in this uh, comics. Definitely our horny episode of the major spoilers podcast. And that's where we are going to end it this week. Thank you so much for downloading and listening again. If you found value, we would love for you to join us on our Patreon page where you can find even more fun. Uh, you get the pre-show, you get access to a bunch of other things, depending on the tier that you join at. And again, you do get a discount when you pay for a year in advance. You also get access to secret channels on the major spoilers discord server. Uh, Even if you don't want to become a patron and you just want to get in on the Discord server, do it. Uh, A lot of cool people over there. It doesn't cost you anything to join our Discord server. Um, You get access to most of the Discord server uh, without having to pay money. But if you do become a patron, you do get access to secret channels like the patron chat channel and the critical hit channel, uh, secret channel there, as well as some other channels that you only get when you become a patron at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Rodrigo, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, Matthew, thank you for joining us this week. Next week, oh man, we are looking at That Texas Blood Volume 1, which not only features uh, the return of uh, 
some uh, comic book creators that we like. It also features the return of one Rand Bellavia. He's coming back next week on the Major Spoilers podcast. Why? Because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Bad Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm Stark Raven rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline Would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine Be in the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier what a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler This podcast is copyright 2024 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit